Psalm 119 continues to lead us this morning in our worship. It's kof in the Hebrew alphabet, and it's revolving around struggle. Notice the interchange between God's word and struggle. My soul languishes for thy salvation. I wait for thy word. My eyes fall with longing for thy word. While I say, when wilt thou comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in smoke, it shrivels up. I do not forget thy statutes. How many are the days of thy servant? When, when wilt thou execute judgment on those who persecute me? It's been all my life, and it seems as though nothing's changed. I've struggled. The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with thy law. Either all thy commandments are faithful, they have, they have persecuted me with a lie, help me. They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake thy precepts. Revive me according to thy loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of thy mouth. The psalmist goes, man, this, this world has been rough, this light, this city is sin and misery. And though I've kept your word in my mind throughout it all, it hasn't changed anything. I struggle. And then he comes to the very end of this section and he says, Oh Lord, I realize my hope and glory is not simply in mindless, aimless, faithless obedience. It is fellowshipping with you. Revive me according to your loving kindness. It's feasting upon the loving kindness of God through his word. So through it all, his word has been there. Through it all, may God give us the grace to be revived on his loving kindness. Brothers and sisters, it's a call to come and now indeed be revived by his word. Turn with me, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 3. And we'll continue our study of this fourth vision. Zechariah chapter 3. And uh, this is part two. We got a a quarter of the way or a third of the way through. This morning we're going to finish this vision, vision number four. Um, I'll read the entire chapter, the ten verses of vision three. This morning, this is God's word. Let me invite you to stand together with me as we read it. Hear now the word of our king. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garment and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and you will, and, and will clothe you with festal robes. <clears throat> then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol 
For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of fellowship, of coming and now being revived according to your loving kindness. But Lord, for that to take place, Holy Spirit, we pray you would open our eyes. Grant us depth of fellowship with you now, eyes to see and ears to hear. And then, O oh God, grant us grace to be responsive to what we hear. That your word would indeed transform us and renew in us a hope and a vigor and a love and a devotion to you that has waned. Grow us, O oh Lord, we pray in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I know I've shared this with some of you before. When I was in seminary, I had a good friend of mine who, um, his senior year, along with me, he was candidating for a church, for a pulpit, and there was a church that needed pulpit supply, and we were looking for a preacher. And so he went there as an informal pulpit. Uh, he was filling the pulpit, but it was an informal um, a candidating. He was looking Perhaps this would be the church that, that would call him, and likewise, they knew that, that as well. Right before he was to leave, his children got sick, so his wife had to stay home in St. Louis, and he went the four-hour drive, four drive by himself, preached, and then after the, the day that he was there, he drove home, and while he was driving home, his wife had a real good friend in that church, and so she called this friend, and she asked, what was the, res- the response of the congregation to, to Mike? And... Uh, she said it was fantastic. Mike is just an incredible guy, and, and he preached this incredible sermon on Matthew. And she went into detail talking about what he said and, and what the text of Matthew meant to her and the deep insight, the incredible insight Mike had and, 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 and what difference it made in her life. So it's very positive. So she's excited. So Mike comes home, walks in the door, and, and they, of course, greet. And after a little bit of time, she says, so how did it go? And he shared what he shared. And she said, I talked with whoever the girl's name is, Vicki. And she shared that your sermon on Matthew was amazing. And he said, I didn't preach on Matthew. <laughs> yeah, I preached on Romans. In fact, I didn't even mention Matthew. I didn't say a word about Matthew. And yet this woman wanted to detail about Matthew. And what that illustrates is that everyone listening to a sermon, not all of them are necessarily listening to a sermon. Right? In fact, that's an extreme example, but I know that many of you, this is just part of, of the foolishness of preaching, that I'll be preaching and your mind will go off and you'll be gone for five minutes and you come back and then, uh, then, then others will drift away and, and uh, come back and it will be easy to listen to a sermon and walk away missing the point of the text. It's because of that, I think, very purpose that Zechariah chapter 3 takes the form that it does. Just like chapter 2, Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, is the vision. That's the vision. 6 through 10 is no longer the vision. It's an exhortation that the angel of the Lord, who we know as Jesus Christ, gave to Joshua so that he would not miss the point. I love this. 
So the section we're on today, we already looked at 1 through 5. We saw the vision last week. 6 through 10, now is just like chapter 2. He follows the exact same pattern. 1 through 5 is the vision. 6 through 13 in chapter 2 was Zechariah's exhortation based upon that vision. Well, now this is chapter 3, Christ's exhortation based upon the vision they just saw. So we're talking about the radical grace of God. And uh, now we're going to get to the point of this vision. Whatever you took from that vision last week, I hope it was a wonderful time of fellowship with you. But whatever you took, today will now let us know what we should take. Take that, what you took, but make sure you don't walk away from this vision without taking what Jesus Christ is going to exhort. That being said, for the sake of of understanding, let's let me give you a running commentary quickly on Romans three one or Romans, Zechariah three one through five, the uh, um, radical grace of God, what it does specifically here, it cleanses. Notice with me, verse one. We'll just walk uh, through it rather quickly. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing his right hand to accuse him. So this is a court scene we already saw. Joshua is stand; He's the defendant. He's standing before a judge. But it's not Joshua. you got to see this. This is not Joshua standing before the judge. This is Joshua the high priest. Which means this is you and me. The high priest. The priest represents man t- uh, to God. So this is not Joshua in the dock. This is you and me. This is all God's people. When they sin, what's God's disposition? This is God's disposition. Okay, Joshua, all of us are standing before God in judgment because of our sin. And God, who is it? Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, as we've seen, stands there. And he's the one who's going to issue judgment. What's so cool about this, brothers and sisters, is unlike in our day where you might have a family member who's a judge, and maybe as a sociopath or a sociopathic tendency, ooh, I'm going to give extra um, justice to this person because they're my family members. But what we want is them to be gracious and kind. Be just, but be gracious. The fact that Jesus is your judge, brothers and sisters, guarantees that. He's not a sociopath. He's not going to sit there and just blindly. He's your Savior who died for you. So here you've got us before the one whom we love, who loves us back. He's the one judging. And then you've got the accuser, the brethren, standing on our side. And the accuser, not standing for us, but standing next to us. And he is accusing us, a foul revolt against God. In fact, I referenced this last week. I'm going to read it now. Psalm 85, 4-5. It was written by one of the sons of Korah in response to the return of God's people to the land. Listen to just a snippet. The whole, the whole psalm is fantastic. But listen to just a snippet. Restore us, O God. This is after God's people have come back. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine indignation towards us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us? Wilt thou prolong thy anger to all generations? When God's people went into exile, the first question they thought of was, why has God forsaken us, right? But, when, but then Chronicles was written. And the point of Chronicles traces the history of David all the way through, giving religious commentary as you go to demonstrate God has not forsaken his people. His, his people have forsaken God. And for 70 years, God's people sat in exile struggling. Not because God did them wrong, but because they and their parents, their, par- their dads and moms did God wrong. And so they sat for 70 years under the justice the righteous justice and judgment of God, whereby God judged the theocracy. Not the individual, 
but the theocracy. In fact, Daniel, 70 years later, now in his mid-80s, Daniel chapter 9, remember? 70 years later, this is still the prayer. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Brothers and sisters, that was the corporate mindset of the people of God at the time. And you can be sure, though they came back to the promised land, what did they get? They got famine. They got Samaritans attacked. They didn't get what David got. They didn't get what Saul did. They didn't get what Solomon had, the glory days when the enemy ran from them. No, they were there with, with droughts and struggles, and famine, and attacks, and threats. So all they could conclude was, God's still angry with us. We're still under the judgment of God, not as a nation now, but as individuals. This is God's disposition. When we sin, this is what happens. We've been living like this for 70 years, and once again, we're there. And you can be sure Satan made sure everyone in Palestine who came back walked around with a sense of guilt and grief and heaviness. Brothers and sisters, God does not want you to walk around with grief and guilt and heaviness in your walk with him. So this passage definitively gives us God's disposition, not to the theocracy, we saw that, but to the individual Christian when they sin. And what does he do? Verse 2, immediately rebukes. Remember this word, the way that the Hebrew is written? It's speeded up. It's, this, it's a definitiveness, quickness. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Bam! Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So would you notice, brothers and sisters, he doesn't say the Lord rebuke you, Satan, because my people are so good. Remember that? We want it to be that way. We want God to say, well, you know what? They have suffered a lot, and they've, they've, they've done a lot of Bible study now, and they've done all these righteous things and all these religious activities. Therefore, Satan, you're wrong in accusing them because they're good people. They're my good people. God doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do here? He agrees with Satan. They're firebrands plucked from the fire. They're filled with sin. He doesn't debate it. But on what basis does he tell his people Understand, brothers and sisters, God's people were relating to God on a performance basis. Mark that. God's people at this moment for 70 plus years, individually, were relating to God on the basis of their performance. And God says, this has nothing to do with you. What, on what basis does he rebuke Satan? God's love. Right? The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. God's choice, election, is rooted in the divine love that began before the world began. Before Romans says, you did anything good or bad, God set his love upon you. Do you understand that? Do you understand this very moment that you are saved not because of anything you have done and you will continue to be saved not because of anything you do but because God, before the world began, said, I choose you. Put your name there. Think about that. Wow. So God rebukes Satan. 
And the way he rebukes me says, there can never be a charge against my, my people ever again. Why? Because I love them. I, I died for them and I love them. Be gone. Performance idea, any kind of performance uh, thinking in your mind, gone. He rebukes them so fast. Satan may think it, the world may think it, and you may think it. Be done. Be done. No, it's not based on our uh, performance. So what does God do in the face of our sin? Let me ask you, what does he do? Well, based on what we saw in this vision last week, he moves to cleanse. Notice with verse 4. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said, see, I have taken your iniquity from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Brothers and sisters, God's disposition towards you and me when we sin is not anger. It's forgiveness. Do you understand that? You can sin a billion times and he'll forgive you more. The rest of your life could be wrought and fraught with sin and he'll forgive you more. As great as your sin may be, his, greater, his grace is greater still. But notice, he doesn't just stop with forgiveness. This is not justification we're dealing with here. This is our growth in grace. You know what God's response is to your sin? It's not to get angry, it's to cleanse. Notice verse 5. As uh, one commentary said, this is the climax of this vision, verse 5. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. What's the significance, brothers and sisters? The head is that where, which our reasoning, our thinking, our worldview, our mind. God says, put this turban on his head. And we know in the context of the priest, the turban on his head, he bore a little plaque that said, holy to the Lord. So in essence, what Christ, the climax of this vision is Christ cleansing our minds. Christ cleansing us, obviously taking away the iniquity three or, or four. But notice five, it's, it culminates in the cleansing of our thinking, our minds. Brothers and sisters, this is huge. This vision is all about the mind. Do you understand that? It's not just your cleansing from justification. This vision is all about your mind. What will control you? The fallen mind or the mind of Christ? That's the issue here. What, on what basis will you live before God? God's people were living with the fallen mind, a performance base. And, and thus they lived trying to placate God. And that led to thinking God is this mean ogre in the sky who sits there like the ant bully and tries to make our life difficult. And God comes in Christ in this vision and tells his people enough of that thinking. We're going to devote your mind. We're going to change your mind. You're going to be renewed through this vision by your through your mind. You got to understand that. The turban's on the mind. Holy to the Lord, Exodus 28, 36, 39, 30. It's God's mind now. And we're now going to think God's thoughts after God. Well, what is that? What is that renewed mind? Well, brothers and sisters, Christ then stops the vision of his cleansing and now turns and says, all right, now let's talk about what the point is here. And while you and I, hearing the first sermon, might walk away with glorious devotional thinking about his cleansing grace, praise God, that's great. Don't miss the point of that vision of that sermon. Notice we're with me. With that, he gives us a description of what 
God's cleansing grace ultimately grants, and I'm going to have you alter your outline just a little bit. I want you to put, it ultimately grants a renewed mind, and in brackets, three privileges, three ways of living, okay? So now your outline says what it ultimately grants, colon, a renewed mind, in brackets, three privileges. Notice with me verse 6. And the angel of the Lord admonished, and admonishment in scripture is an appeal to the mind. Think differently. Admonish Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk my ways, if you perform my service, then. So first and foremost, once again, it's Jesus Christ who's now talking, the angel of the Lord. And in it, get this, he moves his people from a performance-based thinking to a grace-based thinking. He removes his people from thinking in a performance base that the greatest thing that you could ever have in a performance-based thinking, guys, what would be the greatest blessing you could have on this earth? Performance-based. It would be peace. It'd be ease of days. It would not be the Samaritans attacking you. It would not be a lack of money. It would not be fields that don't uh, produce fruit. It would be temporal blessing. Would that not be a performance-based religion? That's what you'd be looking for. And when you didn't get it, you'd think that God was angry at you. God says, no, brothers and sisters, we're going to change this to that you might learn where true love, true joy, true glory, and true satisfaction lies. This whole vision is teaching God's people where true joy, true glory, and true satisfaction lies. Okay? And the first one is... He, or, and, and, and how he shows us that is by giving us three exhortations, which I'm calling duties. But in the context of grace, without grace, duty is another performance. And if I don't do my duty and I fail, God will get me. But with grace, duty now becomes a delight. It is now the world that is most blessed. Do you understand that? God's word is, as the scripture says, Psalm 19, it restores my soul. God's word and the law are one and the same. The law, duty, restores the soul, causes our heart to rejoice, enlightens our eyes, protects us from harm, Psalm 19. So he turns now to three duties which which, uh, reflect a mind which result in glory, rejoicing, and joy. Notice these, the, the mindset of a redeemed Christian, okay? Notice the first one, the privilege or duty of a life now focused not on perfection, but on faithfulness. Notice verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk on my ways and if you perform my service. This is the first layer, okay? Walk in my ways. The word for walk, chalak, carries this idea of just the general life. Eating, drinking, walking by the way, lying down, rising up. It's just the all manner of life. He says, if you will walk in my derrick, in my, in my, not my precepts, although that would be a part of it, but just walk according to what it means to be a child of God. That's what God calls you to do. If you're walking according to the path of what it means to be a child of, of God, the focus here, would you get it, is not on specific duty as it is to a life devoted to fidelity. A faithful life, a life saying, God, uh, my life, your kingdom is my, is my charge. Give me the grace to simply do it. Then he says, if you will perform my service, the word for service is the word for the, the charge of a priest. Remember, it's Joshua. 
and we are in him, priests, if you, if you do, if you're faithful to the call he's, he's uh, given you, if you perform, the word for uh, perform, shamar. If you know any Hebrew, you don't. Some of you do. You've heard this word. Shamar means to listen, to hear, to observe. So if you simply do the calling God's placed on your life as a priest. So notice the very first um, um, if, the very first uh, condition is, brothers and sisters, the first thing you and I want in our walks is simply to be faithful to the Lord. Not performance, but fidelity. That's the new mind. In Jesus Christ, we're no longer nitpicking, oh, did I fail here? Did I fail there? Yes, you failed there. And you failed there. And you failed everywhere, Christian. Name one thing, honestly. Can you name one thing this week that you did well? And if you think you can, would answer it from this perspective. Did you do it perfectly? Without sin? No. Therefore, even, even our righteous deeds are filthy rags, right? So guys, we're done with performance. Performance is a thing of the past. We're now, our whole life revolves around simple fidelity. God, give, take my life and use it for your glory and give me the grace simply to be faithful with the task of today. Jeremiah Miller, Miller wrote these words. No higher praise can be given to any life than to say it has been faithful. No one could ask for a nobler epitaph than the simple words, he was faithful. This will be the commendation given to the great account, given in the great account, to those who have made the most of their talents. You have been faithful with a few things. Faithfulness should therefore be the aim in all our living. It is not great things that God expects or requires of us. Performance-based makes you think the opposite. It's not great things that he expects or requires unless he has given us great gifts and opportunities. All that he requires of us is faithfulness. He gives us certain talents, puts us in certain relations, assigns us certain duties, and then asks us simply to be faithful, nothing more. That's the first point. Man, if just, just focus on faithfulness, children of God. Man, they're, they're walking around with doom and gloom for the last 17 years because they've failed so much and God's wrath is against them or God's, God's uh, not his wrath, he, God's against them. And it, it's just a horrible life. This is horrible. Eeyore Christianity, right? You know, I'm going to build the temple. I'm sure it's going to be destroyed. You know, and I'm going to go out and plant a field. You know, it's not going to grow. And, you know, and, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Brothers and sisters, God says you're done with that. That's performance living. As Christians, you're called to be renewed by your mind. Wear that turban, holy to the Lord. And the first thing that God gives an example is a life of fidelity. That's it. Focus on being faithful. Secondly, would you notice? One, it's not performance, but fidelity. Secondly, verse 7b, not performance, but would you notice, brothers and sisters, it's fellowship. 7b, thus says the Lord God, if you walk in my ways, if you perform my service, then, building on the first, you will also govern my house and have charge over my courts. To govern my house speaks of worship. The language that was given to a priest, priests govern the house of the Lord. And what did they govern? The worship. Because we're priests, God tells us, okay, now that you focus on faithfulness, now I'm going to give you two specific things you want to focus on. One, your worship. 
your worship. Following the theocracy, as soon as they made the theocracy, God's people fell into two massive errors. One, they, they wanted a king like the world. And secondly, they wanted their worship to, to be like the world. And both of them bit them hard. They fell into Baalism quickly into the theocracy where they took the liturgy of Baal and the liturgy of Baal was housed and fueled by this very simple thing. Worship is about fulfillment. It's about us being moved. That's what they, that, that was what worship became to them. Them being moved. Christianity is all about me feeling a certain way about God as opposed to biblical worship is all about ascribing glory and praise to God. Remember, Christ said, if I be lifted up, what's going to happen in your life? What's going to happen to you guys? If Christ is exalted in your life, if you devote your life to exalting Christ at every moment of your day, exalting Christ in your thoughts, but to do that, I've got to be in the Word. I'm in the Word. I'm now devoted to exalting Christ in my efforts. I'm simply being faithful to what God's given me and what I'm focusing on, the mental tells or uh, the mental uh, um, uh, language that I'm focusing on as I live out my life, exalt, lift up Christ. That's what he's saying here. It, you, you will also, if you do that, you're going to be focused on exalting Christ and secondly, having charge over my courts. You know what that is? That was given prior to the fall, or, or prior to the, the exile, that was a charge given to the king. It was the king's job to, to take care of the courts of God. You know what the courts of God were? The community of God's people. His job was to make sure the community was healthy, was growing, vibrant, feasting, fed, nourished. That was his job. How did the king respond? Well, they quickly be, uh, thought that the people existed for them, and so they made the people serve them rather than them serving the people, right? That's what all the prophets were about. Jeremiah 22, it says, God pled the cause of the, of the needy, the weak and the needy. Is this not what it means to know me, says uh, the Lord, Jeremiah 22? Isn't this what Christianity is? Judaism is? Yet the king didn't do that. It was all about them. So after the exile, this charge to care for the, for the community rested with the priest. And because we are in the dock, because we're the ones in the dock, do you understand what this serves as a second calling, which revolves around fellowship? Not only are we to worship God, exalt God, and hence glorify Christ in all that we do, let him be lifted up. How's that for a timing? Let him be lifted up. Thank you, Lord. Boom. Okay. But we're also to be called to lift you e each other up. To build up the body of Jesus Christ. That becomes our focus. I become, I become fellowshipped driven. I want to build you up and I want to exalt Christ. I'm going to be faithful what God's called me. That's all I'm called to do. I'm not called to do great, great things. I'm just called to be faithful with the talents he's given me, with the world in which I live, and in the process, exalt Christ and build up those around me. That's kingdom living. That is the point of this vision. God, in the context of a performance-based um, crisis, woe is us. God comes and says, rebuking any kind of thought that we stand condemned. Never again are you condemned. No condemnation. 
Satan be gone. You're never going to think those thoughts about my people. And Christians, don't you think those thoughts about you either? He rebukes it quickly. And then he, he, he sets them aside. He cleanses them. Just think of a, of a loving parent. What does a loving parent do when, when their baby soils its garments? It's exactly what God does for you. He cleanses you. He doesn't get mad at you. He doesn't say bad six-month-old. You change the diapers in a loving, gracious way. That's what God does. He changes the diapers of performance-based religion to grace-based religion. Grace-based religion now is all about fidelity to the Lord, exalting Christ, and, and uh, fellowshipping, building up the body of Jesus Christ. And notice where it culminates. This is a progressive um, exhortation. Each one leads to the next. Notice with me verse uh, 7c. It last leads to the privilege or duty of walking with God who is near. So we're not performance-based. We are companionship-based. Okay? Performance leads to faithfulness. Or, or it's not performance, it's faithfulness. It's not performance, it's fellowship. And lastly, it's not performance, it's companionship with God. Notice 7c. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways, if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and have charge of my courts. And this is what's going to happen. I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Now, brothers, as the high priests and sisters, you know the high priests entered into the presence of God once a year. That was their access. Day of Atonement. Wow, that man right there. He gets to enter into the presence of God. In the pre- Think of this, guys. He is the only one who gets to enter the presence of God. Amazing. Once a year. The Day of Atonement. And when he was, was there, it was, it was uh, carried out with fear and trembling, right? They put a rope around the guy's leg, bells on his, on his body, on his garment, so that if the bells stop ringing in the temple, that means he's been struck dead, and we're going to pull him out. That's how they entered in God's presence. What God tells Joshua here is, I'm telling you, this is a new day. Joshua and thus everybody in Joshua now have full access, free access to me at all times and all places. It's a brand new way. Before you thought you could only come once a year. Now all my people can come to me. Why? Because the temple curtain was rent and the holy place invaded the holy of holies. I'm sorry, the holy of holies invaded the holy place. The holy place is our daily living. And God took over daily living. And this is a foretaste of that. And now, therefore, you and I have the privilege of walking with God on a day-to-day basis. Ian DeGuid wrote these words. You've got them there in your, in your notes. He says, Joshua is promised unusually direct communication with the divine council, and we in him because we're, he represents us. He's not in this on his own. He can take his concerns to the Lord and expect to be heard. He can also expect to receive guidance and direction from the throne room. Brothers and sisters, that's grace living. Performance living goes once a year. And even then when you do it, you're scared and you're frightened because you don't know what's going to happen. You might do something that angers the old man. You know what I mean? Wow. But no, grace is... God is an exalted king. I want to exalt him. Simply being faithful to the calling. My life is about faithfulness now. It's not about duty. It's about faithfulness and the delight that I have to focus on exalting Christ, building up the body of Jesus Christ, and lastly, 
walking with my God day in and day out. Christian, that is what God wanted his people to start living. That's the life of redemption. It's not walking around waiting for the next shoe to fall, which is how God's people lived. It's walking with the Lord, knowing that he is your father, he is your savior, he is your friend, he is master, he is the transcendent being indeed. But that awesome God, that judge, is also your father and your friend. And so it's this life of walking with God. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. How frequently do you walk with God? You know, all the time, I think. What do you mean, Greg? How frequently do you walk around and just talk to the Lord? As you get in the car and you see a car wreck, oh, Lord, please help that situation. Or a person cuts you off, God, clearly there, help them, you know, save them. Or do you just respond to the world in which you live? You walk with God in the morning for 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 10 minutes, if you can get it in, if you can fit it in. And then you walk with God maybe during worship, but that's so formal and, yeah, not really there. Brothers and sisters, are you walking with the Lord? You go, what does that mean? Well, let me ask you something. Have you ever taken a walk with someone you love? What do you do? Do you sit there really stiff, you know? (laughs) You know, because I could do something wrong, you know? No. You walk and you say, you want to skip? You know? How's it going, man? I mean, how was your day? How was this? I mean... Guys, if you've ever gone for a walk with someone you love, you know what that walk's like. Isn't it glorious how God calls us to walk with him? That's it here. That's the life of redemption. That's the life of grace. That's the third or fourth vision. Now notice the basis. And I've got that C, what is ultimately provided. Okay? This one here would be the basis for all of it. So not only are we focusing on... um, uh, um, uh, performance giving way to uh, faithfulness and performance giving way to um, uh, uh, fellowship. Now would you notice, brothers and sisters, and community living in the whole bit, notice what the basis is. Verse 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. So understand, Joshua wasn't the only priest. He was, he was the high priest. There were a lot of priests at, in Palestine at this time. And, and honestly, the priests were the ones who did all the work. The high priests led them. The high priest was was to make sure that the work got done. And other than the Day of Atonement, he didn't do the daily sacrifices. That's the daily priests. Okay, so the vision, we don't see that in verses 1 through 5. The vision has all of the priests. And God, Christ looks at Joshua and says, Joshua, understand something. Those priests are a sign. Now, the word for sign in the Hebrew has two senses. It can be a display of God's power. It's used in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 2, as a miracle or a power that testified to the authenticity of God. Right? So a prophet, how do you know it's a prophet? Because of the sign he performs, the miracle he performs. That's this word. But also is used in scripture to refer to a, a portent or that which is given to bear witness of a future event. For example, Isaiah eight eighteen. Let me read it. He had two sons with peculiar names. The first son's name was Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So, Betsy, Enrique, just a thought. Okay, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Or the second son's name 
was Sha'ar Jashub. I personally like that better than Maher Hashbash. But listen to what the text says. Now listen, um, he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are a portent, a sign, a wonder in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. His children were given a name which was to serve as a portent, a, a sign which told the people a message in the future. That's what a sign is, a portent. It tells you something about the future. So Maher Shalal Hashbaj means speed, spoil, haste, booty. Every time they saw him, they were proclaiming that the exile is coming soon. And every time they saw Sha'er Jashub, a remnant will return was the promise that God's going to bring him back. So those two kids were exiled, but he's going to bring them back. But they were a portent. Everywhere they went, they were a proclamation of a message. Well, God told Joshua, Joshua, see those priests in front of you? Christians, I want you to think of all the priests who weren't the high priest who served. They were a portent to Joshua. They were a message of a future time, a future thing. What's that message? The branch. The message is there's going to be another priest to Joshua. And once again, who are these servants? Joshua's the high priest. This priest would be a serving priest. And this priest is going to come. The test goes, for behold, I'm going to bring in my servant the branch. He's a servant. He's the branch. So we're going to talk about this in Zechariah 6, so I'm not going to spend time here now. But notice what it says. For behold, the stone, I'm sorry, um, for behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. Stop there, the seven-eyed stone. Brothers and sisters, I spent a lot of time this week studying this, and I come to a, another dogmatic conviction as to what this means. And if you disagree with me, sorry, you're wrong. This is my dogmatic uh, conclusion. No one can be dogmatic about what this means. Okay? No idea. I've got a list of 10 different commentators suggesting what this means, and they're all different. No one knows what it means. The seven-eyed stone, no idea, but we know the significance. Notice where it leads. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day by my servant the branch. That's referencing the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, what's so significant about that, brothers and sisters? Context, real quickly. God's people were in exile how long? How many years? One more time. God's people were in exile how many years? 70. Very good class. Okay, 70. Okay, there's 70 years. Why 70 years? Because they missed 70 jubilees. That's always seven years. And what's the year of jubilee? Year of jubilee is on the seventh year. You don't, you don't do the crops. God will take care of you with all the food beforehand. Instead, you rest. You enjoy a year of fellowshipping with God. God's people didn't do it because they didn't have enough faith. So God's people skipped 70 jubilees. So guess what? God required 70 years for the land to remain fallow. That's why it was 70 years. And all the time, God's people were judged. So how long did it take for God's people as a theocracy to pay for the 70 missed years of Jubilee? 70 years. God says, guess what, brothers and sisters? I'm going to bring a, a priest who will handle all the sin in a single day. You have to wait 70 years. You don't have to go to a confessor. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to sit there and spend your entire life wondering, are you sin uh, forgiven? One day, what is that day? The cross of Jesus Christ. Incredible prophecy of the branch. We'll get to there in Zechariah uh, chapter 6 when the time comes. So brothers and sisters, with that, we then get to the point, the basis. Verse 10. 
And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his, vine, under his vine and under his fig tree. What day? The day that all of the sins are taken care of immediately. When that happens, you're going to, my people invite their neighbors to sit under a, fig, a vine or a fig tree. Let me ask you, how many people on that day that Christ was crucified asked anyone to sit under the, the vine or fig tree? How many of you have ever asked someone to sit underneath a fig tree? Okay, you have, but you don't know it. This is a colloquialism. And we, let me read it, First Kings 4. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and fig tree. Micah 4. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for, uh, for mighty, distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. And each one will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. That's a colloquialism of peace. On that day, there's now going to be peace. You know the basis for this worldview that Jesus is talking about here? It's his cross work. It's the fact that at that cross work, peace was instantaneously given to the people of God. Every one of God's people. If you're saved today, you are right now sitting under your vine and under your fig tree because you've got peace with God. Right? Think of the many passages in Scripture that speak of that. There having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. John 14, this not only is a positional peace, but a practical peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be fearful. Brothers and sisters, we're not just talking about positional peace. We're talking about practical peace. A peace that pervades everything in your life because you know it's well with your soul. John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you've got horrible pressure, tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, the peace that God gives is a peace that transcends all of life, that then nullifies and mutes the burdens of this world. Let me close by explaining that. The peace God gives is a peace with him that nullifies the burdens of living in a state of sin and misery such that you and I can not only have positional peace but a sense of peace our entire life. How so? I think Tozer gives it for us. Look at the quote. All the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together and at once. Think of all the burdens in your life. Imagine experiencing them all at the same time. They would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God, that he is, what he is like, and what we as moral beings must do about him. All the burdens of the world are nothing compared to the burden we have with satisfying divine justice. Eternity in hell is the, the burden. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal burdens. For he sees at once that, there are, that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a single weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled upon another. That mighty burden is his obligation to God. It includes an, an instant and lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind and soul to obey him perfectly and to worship him acceptably. And when the man's laboring conscience tells him that he has done none of these things, but, is, but has from childhood been guilty of foul revolt against the majesty in the heavens, 
The inner pressure of self-accusations may become too heavy to bear. Christian, that's the burden we have that makes every burden of this world nothing. The gospel can lift this destroying burden from the mind, give beauty for ashes, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Do you see how the gospel is is, is a positional piece which transcends the rest of life? You've got the most important thing in the world, a relationship with Jesus Christ. More than that, God Almighty saying, this, this awesome, awesome transcendent being saying, not guilty. You've got that today, right now. And that means every burden piled upon another cannot compare to the glorious declaration that's been made on your behalf because of what Christ did in that day, which causes us to sit in our, under our vine and fig tree and enjoy the year of Jubilee, or better yet, the life of Jubilee. We'll spend eternity sitting under our fig tree, not working, not laboring, not trying to make sure God is still happy with us. No, we sit in our, our fig tree with one another, exalting Christ, fellowshipping with the Lord, walking and communing with God as we go. Why? Because it is well with our soul before Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's what this vision was given to God's people for to teach them a new, completely new way in how they approach God. It's the way of grace, radical grace, not the way of performance. May God give us the grace to be done with the way of performance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, this incredible prophecy, and this vision that you gave your people at such an important, seminal moment in redemptive history. The theocracy's gone. All that is left is the individual standing with their God. And Lord, you come and give us this incredible declaration. We're not to live as if we're performance-based, but we're to live by your grace, your radical grace that gives us life. God, I pray for your people in this body. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Give us grace to respond to this passage by a whole new way that the mind of Christ might govern us. That our walks with you would be about exalting a Savior whom we love, communing with a Savior who walks with us moment by moment, and then building up and lifting up brothers and sisters that they might do the same. Oh, how you love us. Thank you, God. Give us the grace with this vision to respond and be done with the performance-based guilt and burdens that come when difficulty sets upon us and we wonder, what have we done to deserve this? God, we praise you. The answer is nothing. You've done it all. This is not your discipline. This is sin and misery. Give us the grace, O Lord, to enjoy you accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the table of the Lord this morning.